Hello to all you lovely listeners and welcome back to season four of Therapy Works. I'm your host, Judah Samuel, a best-selling author, psychotherapist, and now self-proclaimed podcaster. And these are my daughters. Hi, I'm Emily. And I'm Sophie. Each week, we invite you into our therapy room, where we'll be joined by a variety of voices, some well-known and some unknown. Together, we'll be navigating some of life's biggest challenges. That's right. We'll be diving deep into conversations about struggles people have faced or are still facing. We believe that sharing these stories is not just cathartic, but can also be profoundly healing. Absolutely. As fellow psychotherapists, we're here to help you, our wonderful listeners, expand your understanding of therapy and its transformative power. After each conversation, Emily, Sophie and I will reflect on what we've learned and how these insights can be applied to your own lives. It's our mission to prove that meaningful conversations, even those that contain difficult emotions, can be a source of growth, resilience and hope. Whether you're a long-time listener or just joining us for the first time, we're thrilled to have you with us on this journey. We hope that each episode leaves you with something valuable to carry into your own life. And without further ado, let's dive straight into this week's episode and start unpacking life's challenges together. Hello, Lem Sissy. I've been a huge fan of yours for a long time, so I am really excited and touched that you've joined me. Well, you're an amazing human being, and within that, you're a poet and a playwright and a broadcaster and a speaker. You've written nine books, seven plays, and four radio plays. And I guess what I'm interested in is, given that you've been so amazingly productive, what's happening in your internal world that has been so creative. But my main question for all of my listeners, because I can see you're making a face like, what? Where are we going here? Is um, what is a challenge you are facing or have faced? Well, the challenge that I faced right then, as you were sort of laying out a description of what it is that I do, the immediate challenge was thinking, how does that come across to somebody who's never heard of me And then thinking, that's not how I think of myself. And then my thought also is, actually, I shouldn't be concerned with what other people's impression of me is, you know. I can't control that. So you could say, oh, Lem's climbed Mount Everest. And somebody might say, well, good for Lem. And somebody else might say, so what? You know, somebody might say, well, I brought up my children uh, as a single parent, you know, which takes a lot more energy than climbing Mount Everest or, <laughs> or a different energy. Yeah. When you say, oh, no, please don't say those things about me. You know, oh, no, really, honestly, you don't need to. It is very much the ego that's speaking. What do other people think of me? I'd rather them think I was humble than I was, quote, all of these things that are in this list. And so when you hear people describe you, and I I think this is for any of us, actually, it's quite difficult sometimes because you're not in control of the impression and you're faced with the fact that you're not in control of it. So I think my biggest challenge is to try and be in the present as much as I can 
And I really mean that. I don't mean that in some sort of uh, airy fairy avoiding the answer way. I mean, we've all got a story which can distract us from being in the present. And I have to, you know, I could very much be in the past or the future. My biggest challenge is to be here now. And I really get what you're saying in that you kind of hear this list of achievements and accolades and it gets your brain worrying about what will other people think. Some will be positive, some will be negative. And so what you really want is to be here with me in this moment. Yeah. And the challenge of it is when emotions come up, you can be thrown into the past or you can be thrown into a projected unknown future. And so the challenge is how do I stay with my present energy, given that I am very influenced by what happened to me in the past? And that has shaped the present energy of who I am in this moment. Yeah, I think whether we're conscious of it or not, and sometimes it's more evident when we're not conscious of it, our present is affected by our past. You know, somebody says, oh, well, I've got nothing to worry about. That That is an acknowledgement of their own past <laughs> in the same way. So I, I am fully aware of the danger of being judged based on an idea of what I am that's got nothing to do with me. So I, I, I'm aware of the trap of basing your opinion on the past and on a, on a prejudice of the past as well. I think we look back quite often. We sort of patronise the past so that it serves our purposes. I think the greatest respect you can give for the past is to try and be in the present as much as possible. That's so powerful, and I can really, I really get that you want to respect the past and give it its due and like not be influenced by me saying like I've been excited to meet you and because I have this version of you that really is my version of you and maybe nothing to do with who you really are and I guess as a therapist who you really are I'm more interested in who you really are internally as much as yeah, it has produced yeah. these things yeah. I'm also aware that you said childhood lasts a lifetime. So yeah, in your present today is your childhood. Yes, absolutely. It's one of the, the richest experiences of childhood that it lasts a lifetime. One of the, for me, richest descriptions of childhood is that it lasts a lifetime. It will affect your adulthood more than any other experience in your life. Isn't that incredible? So when people are talking about, you know, a childhood in care, like mine was, uh, they often think that the solution is while the child is in care, in children's homes or foster care or whatever, often it's the absolute opposite. The solution is in their adult life, and that's when they recall their childhood more than any time they, they did in their childhood. I think that's a perfect description of therapy, right? Is that while you are in care, for our listeners, if you can bear to, I I would like you to give us some insight into what happened to you. As a child, you were just doing and developing the best coping mechanisms you could, given the situation that you were in, and you probably weren't very conscious of them. But those coping mechanisms are what shape you 
in adulthood, and they may be maladaptive coping mechanisms. They were all you had at 11 or 12 or 8 or whatever it is, but they don't necessarily fit, and yet they are so powerful. They come in and influence your response to everything in this moment. Absolutely. This is why um, therapy works, you know. <laughs> uh, and it's it's one of the tools that I think should be offered to every child who's been in care, but not while they're in care. That could be the case, but also when they're in their adulthood, because that's when it affects, that's when their experience in care affects them. Shall I just give a very quick, brief yes. introduction to what my story is? Yes. Um, my mum came to this country in the ni- late 60s. She was pregnant. She was put into a mother and baby home. Um, she refused to have me adopted. She didn't want to have me adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, the social worker gave me to foster parents, which is very different to adoption. It's short term and it's it's there because the parents are ill or in hospital or like my mother in another country um, studying. The social worker gave me to foster parents, but said to them, treat this as an adoption is yours forever. He changed my name illegally. And yeah, the foster parents told me they were my parents, that my birth mother didn't want me. So I thought they were my mum and dad, you know, lived with them, grew up with them since I was a baby, called them mum and dad, you know, etc. They then when I was 12 years of age, on the edge of adolescence, they put me into children's homes, said they'd never visit me and never did. And I lost everybody that I'd ever known. Mum, dad, sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles, cousins, granddads, grandma, granddad, great grandma, where they lived, where they were from, my whole infrastructure, which was full of people and church and schools and first girlfriends and football on the flower park and um that was was wiped it was an emotional hiroshima is the best way i can explain it and i became a singular child held in a children's home alone with nobody to answer for anything that had happened to me up until that point in my life i was then held in four different children's homes meaning that i left a children's home every year and a half i left every person that i'd ever known there the staff changed every four hours. The one thing that I understood to be real was transience. I left the oh. care system at 18 years of age. The social worker gave me my birth certificate. He said, this is your name. It wasn't the name Norman, which is the name I thought it was. And there it was on my birth certificate, Lem Sisse, my full name. And he also said, somebody did love you. And he gave me letters from my mother that were in my files pleading for me back to the social worker whom she had me fostered with through for a short period of time. And his name was Norman. He'd named me after himself. So at 18 years of age, the, the system closed its doors behind me, put those files into a company called the Iron Mountain and left me with nobody to answer to again. So first it was the foster parents that did it. Then it was the care system to do it. I was 18 years of age with the rest of my life before me. At 18, I had no mother, father, sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents. I didn't know anybody who'd known me for longer than a year. And it was all evidence on my birthdays and at Christmases. And it's almost unimaginable for a person to experience that. But that is what I experienced. And as you're speaking, you know, I can have a sense of, and I can never know that of that Hiroshima that you're, it wasn't the rug that was taken from you, it was everything that was taken from you. You had 
nothing and nobody for that crucial adolescent time in your life. When I went into children's homes at 12 years of age, my family were a tactile family because we we were at church, Baptist church, which is a very tactile kind of faith, um, and which was beautiful because family. But when I went into care at 12, I only realized this many years later, in my 30s, I stopped being touched. I stopped being touched. From the age of 12 to 18, no adult touched me out of care. No. I stopped being physically touched, held, hugged, kissed. It's when I say that, it's it suddenly hits home with more people. But let me tell you, the experience was so difficult to articulate that it's years later that I could articulate it because I didn't know what I didn't have. And this is why there was no care in the care system, because neither did anybody else. The more I was in the care system, the more invisible I became. Sounds like a sort of dystopian, like not being touched at all from 12 to 18, from being a boy who was a child, who was a brother, who had parents, a, a whole universe thrown into this. It feels like a prison. You say held, like it was a prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, where... mean, I, was, I was imprisoned when I was a young boy as well, when I was 16, 15, 16. I mean, in a, in a remand centre, which was called an assessment centre. So there was no legal reason to imprison me. Um, but it was a technicality and it was the short, sharp shock treatment. And it it assumed that I had to have been a naughty boy in the children's home. And it just wasn't the case. And I did sue the government years later when uh, My Name Is Why came out, 2018. Uh, they settled out of court, uh, but sent me an apology for what they'd done to me. I think when somebody is in shock and trauma, it's very difficult for them to articulate so well what it is that's happened to them, especially when they're young. That description of not being touched becomes a bridge between me and you so that you can get an immediate, clear understanding of both the physical and social and psychological effect of being in care. But finding those moments that didn't happen means that you have to walk through a very dark space where you're trying to understand what happened and you won't stop until you do understand. Now, many people leave care wanting to forget about it as soon as they left and and they'll close down that memory and get on and they'll have children and they'll live a full life, but knowing that they can't go to a certain place inside themselves. And I fully understand and respect that decision. That's most people, I think, who've been in care. Or actually, most people who've been through trauma of some kind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. People are incredibly able to withstand such horror, actually, in their lives. And the people I feel most pity towards are the people who've not gone into care, Julia. The people who suffered with parents who were doing things they shouldn't have been doing, but who never went into care. 
you know, the kids who went to the boarding schools. Those are really easy kind of things for me to grab and show you. But actually, there are lots of other reasons why children who should have been saved should have been saved from abusive parents and parents who needed help themselves. Why am I saying this to you? Because all of our experiences, if we walk through that dark space and try to understand them, all of our experiences become bridges to be able to understand each other and to the rest of the world. So I see myself, rather than as somebody who's got a ravine between other people because of my mad experience, actually, I'm a bridge builder. I love that idea of a bridge builder. You know, when you talk about trauma, what I understand about trauma is that trauma blocks memory because it pushes memory away. And what trauma needs most is love. And what trauma finds most difficult to take in is love. It feels like being this invisible Hiroshimaized child, you couldn't find the bridge until you found your creativity, where then you began to have a voice and be seen and heard. I must recall that um, one of my favourite pieces of music was written by Gorecki, and it's Symphony Number 3 by Gorecki. They're called Sorrowful Songs. Oh, wow. It's used to describe what happened in Auschwitz, this particular part of Symphony Number 3. And um, it's written because of a poem that was written on the walls of a cell by a a child to a mother or a mother to her child. And the reason I say that is because when I was on my own and there was no audience and there was no uh, books and there was no performances and there was no reader. Or listener. Or listener. It was a poem and writing poetry which could articulate what was happening inside of me. So what I'm doing now is I'm just following that same path. And and, and the power is in what that did for me. I got a familial sense when I wrote a poem. In lieu of having a family, the act of creativity of writing gave me a sense of place. Because that is that's partly all that family is, is a sense of place for the spirit and the body, the physical, the two things. And my body had been taken out of a place where my spirit was. I had to find my way back somehow. And writing a poem weirdly did that. I felt like I was in the middle of a storm on a mountainside, and the poem like allowed me to put a flag in the ground and saying, I am here now. This is not a dream. This is not a nightmare. I am here now. Describe what was happening around me, then leave that flag and walk and then get through the storm on the mountainside and put in another flag and say, I am here now. Whatever anybody's saying around me, this is not right. It's not right what's happening. And I would describe that. And there came a point on this journey where I could look back and see how far I'd come, where I'd been, 
and what had happened to me through the poems that I'd written. And then it was a case of proving it again. You see, that was the proof enough for me. That's so moving, Lemmy, that 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 in having nobody around you or outside you to listen, hear you, to find your words, that you used language and poetry instinctively as steps towards yourself to find a place of belonging. And that those words, the poems, were your bridges to finding your belonging internally that allowed you to connect with the world and communicate. Yeah, well, like I say, I could see as far as the poem. You know, one of the problems with these things that you described at the beginning of our conversation is that they take me, sorry, you haven't, but I suddenly am taken away from actually what is the source of it all, which is that moment between me, a piece of paper, and uh, a pen. Because you're a therapist, I want to share this with you. Yeah, tell me. For years after leaving care, I had a dream that I was back in care, I was back in the children's home, I was back in the assessment centre, and that I was there as an adult, and that like whatever I did, I couldn't get out. But what I wanted to do was prove to the staff that I was ready to go, because that that's what happened when I was in, in my late teens. And Dickens had the same dream. Dickens went into a poorhouse. One of the only parts of his autobiography, which he wrote, he talks about be, being in his dreams and wandering desolately back to that place where he could not, to the poorhouse. And um, I'm not likening myself to Dickens, by the way. I'm just ex- just yes, no, it makes sense. similarity yeah, the yeah. trauma of the dream. Yeah. So I had that dream that I was in that same assessment centre every, I mean, every few months until I was in my 40s, maybe. Wow. Maybe late 30s. It was a very real dream, and it was the yeah. same assessment centre. I'd stopped having it because of, some very good therapy. Oh, and after forgiving my foster mother as well, actually, that's why it's in my 40s. I forgave my foster parents and I, I forgave everybody actually for what they did because I don't think most people knew what they did that was as harmful as it was. Last night I watched Seven Up, which oh, is yeah. this incredible series. Documentary, yeah. Which follows uh, a, a young person from the age of being seven to being 65 and every seven years there's a documentary yes, it's called yes. seven up it's on itv it's amazing i've watched it all the way through it's oh my extraordinary gosh. well don't, don't tell me too much because two of those young men were in children's homes yes and it was around the same time i was in children's homes yes. and i saw it and last night i had that dream again oh that I was in the children's home. I mean, I'm fine. You know, I did really the, am. Did the dream change at all? That's a really good question. It changed. I think I was in a different children's home. Oh, gosh, it's gone now. The dream, yeah, it's sort of melted as like dreams do when you wake up. But but I did mention it to Anna and said, you know, oh, I had that dream that I've not had for years and years and years. And it's because of watching 7-Up. What was beautiful about 7-Up, and I would recommend your listener to yeah. to watch seven up especially if you liked it as well julia i loved it i still watch it yeah. it has all different kinds of people in it different classes. classes of people and 
and it has two boys who are in children's home and I watch their development and it's kind of beautiful to see the different developments. So yeah, I just wanted to share that with you anyway, that that, that dream happened last night. It wasn't traumatic, but it was, I didn't wake up worried, but it was there. I just want to take a quick ad break for my wonderful sponsor, Bamford. Bamford is a lifestyle and well-being brand dedicated to nourishing and nurturing your body and mind. It is also committed to doing things in a mindful way, conscious of its impact on nature and the planet. The change in season might be affecting your sleep patterns, so for anyone having disturbed sleep, Bamford's Be Silent treatment would be perfect for this time of year. Japanese shiatsu rocking techniques, a soothing foot bath and assisted stretches to help release tight muscles are all designed to relax your body and prepare it for a restful night. Bamford are inviting listeners of the podcast to experience their targeted holistic treatments at their wellness spas in London or the Cotswolds and are offering a brilliant 15% off all bookings until the end of the year. Book your treatment online at bamford.com and use the code TherapyWorks at checkout on all spa bookings. Also, if you're keen to learn more about the Club by Bamford, a new luxury private members club in the Cotswolds that provides a 360 degrees wellness experience incorporating health, fitness and holistic well-being, please visit bamfordclub.com. A big thank you to Bamford for supporting Therapy Works. Your unconscious obviously still has, you know, parts of you that were in the assessment centre that are in the care home. Mm -hmm. And you've done a lot of work which enabled your unconscious to be conscious. And the big thing was to stop hating and to start forgiving. But obviously watching that documentary last night, you know, brought that back. Absolutely. How I mean, for people listening who have hold a lot of fury, resentment, very legitimate to the care system or to their parents, and given that your experience was such an extreme on how did you get to forgive them? You know, I, I know you you found your mum. You obviously went back to your foster family. What what enabled you to forgive them? Such a big word, forgiving, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think I'd reached a point of understanding. I'll say this in retrospect, okay? I didn't Mm -hmm. know at the time, but this is what it was. I didn't realise that my anger was infiltrating every other area of my life. In other words, my anger was not just an outburst regarding the memory. My anger affected every single relationship that I had. Every single relationship that I had was dictated by my anger. Oh, no, we can't talk about that. Oh, no, I can't go there. Oh, no, I can't do this. Oh, I can only go this far. I can't go any further than that. I suddenly realized, oh, wow, 
My entire existence is being dictated to by my anger. It's turning over the cards and going, I'm not in control of this. This is is in control of me. Now, I say this in retrospect because I didn't know it at the time. Of course you didn't. But when I forgave my foster mother, it was. It's often the mother, unfortunately, that takes the hit. Okay, that's a whole other story. Yeah. But when I forgave her as being the primary person that I viewed had done me so much harm, probably the person I wanted love from the most as well. Okay, yes. that's, that's, that's the deal. But when I forgave her, a weight lifted from my shoulders that I didn't know was there. In fact, I would go so far as to say I was dependent on that weight upon my shoulders as a defining factor to who I am, who I was. This is me. I can carry anything. I can carry pain. I can carry blah. Don't you say anything about me. I know myself. Right. If I wasn't saying that out loud, I was saying it in my head. Okay. So the worst person that I did harm to was me constantly. Okay. Constantly knowing my limitations. I can't do this because of that. Can't go there because of that. I'm obviously not good enough to do that. I can't learn that because of that, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't realize that all of these dysfunctions were dictated to by my own internal anger. But when I forgave, I didn't realize that. I think what you recognized was that your anger, which is an expression of hurt, which was from the very young you that was influencing and shaping every interaction you had in your life and contaminating your entire life, you believed at the time was a protection against hurt, was in effect hurting you. And that when you could release your anger and forgive and unprotect yourself, that freed you and unburdened you to be who you are more fully. Yes, that's it. Um, Can I just add a little bit to that? Yes. That is to say that before I forgave the person who I viewed as the most responsible for my core pain, before I forgave them, I blamed them. So any of my behavior, I would say, Oh, that's to do, the reason I'm angry, it's not my fault. It's my mum who abandoned me as a kid. So I could blame somebody for all of my dysfunctions. Yes, I get that. You see? I mean, it was the gift that keeps on giving, you know, it's a great story as well. It's like, it's like I could be terrible, terrible to my girlfriend. I say, I know I don't mean to be terrible, but it's just, I've had a really hard life. Look, look at it. It's very believable, right? I, so I have this get out, I, I have what I think is a get out cl- card. It's not actually, it's the absolute opposite. It's the stay in card. It keeps you in your jail. Once I'd forgiven my foster mother, uh, rightly so, by the way, this isn't this isn't a practice to do lightly. I met with her face to face and forgave her. It's not a it's not a theoretical forgiveness. Once I forgave her, any behavior that was not becoming, I'm to blame. You have to take responsibility. You have to take responsibility. And that's a big deal because once once I started to take responsibility, I started to understand myself and the world around me more. And strangely, 
I immediately opened a door which was then flooded with empathy for my mother. Your birth mother. My foster mother, my foster mother. This is all about my foster mother. Wow. Yeah. Because it freed you. Yes, you can. You liberated you. Yes. (laughs) Because then you had choice. Yes. You weren't being pushed from this anger from behind, almost like this monster that was (laughs) 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 acting out all the time. And that no one could argue with it because, like, you had it. You know, it's like the gift that kept on giving. Yeah, absolutely. The worse your story is, the more you can live off it. And you can literally be in one room and you can feed off it and feed off it and feed off it until you grow into the size of the actual room. And the monster you know, itself. It's you become the monster. It's grotesque. It's utterly grotesque. And it's not your fault either. You know, so it's, you know, what I'm saying is to the person who forgives, it's not their fault that this happened in the first place. And what what, what it does most of all is it gives you compassion to yourself. And then I think there's a certain amount of amends you need to make for the people that you've hurt. Yeah. (laughs) You know, not easy either. You know, at times that you feel blessed that you've had an experience in life which has helped you understand the world. I mean, if all of us could really know in the visceral way that you painfully have learned this we would live different lives right you know but i think it's happening all the time i think you know all the time we people are learning how to be better versions of themselves and um i do believe that that's the case i mean that's very optimistic but it takes me to the poem that was in the hackney landmark you know Said the sun to the moon, said the head to the heart, we have more in common than sets us apart. That's lovely. I love hearing that. That's great. I write four lines every day and they go out on Twitter and Facebook and what have you. And in fact, I'll be launching a book of them, four line poems called Let the Light Pour In. It's a collection of those morning messages. I've put one out this morning. And there are four lines. It's a quatrain. It rhymes on the second and the fourth line. And, uh, yeah, and off we go. Given where you've come from and what you discovered about yourself, through all of that, the line, despite the anger, and then the kind of more clarity, has been finding words, finding your creativity. And in some way, that is the source of your power. I think so. Let me just read you a little a line from Emily Dickinson, which was the inspiration okay. uh, for a poem that I re- wrote today. But it makes total sense. Once you give words to something, this is what therapy is, isn't it, as well? Yes, it's exactly um, the same. Once you give words to something, it's... Changes. Yes, yes. A word is dead when it is said, some say. I say it just begins to live that day. And here's the thing. When it's said, it's such a big deal. And if you don't believe it, go into your office tomorrow, listener, or to your group of friends, and just tell them a truth about them. (laughs) (laughs) You know, words are powerful. Yes. The the word is an incredibly powerful um, 
tool for change, development, growth, and uh, bridges. Yeah. yeah, has to be heard, I guess, or is it just the saying? I don't have a problem with it being heard or read or whatever. Yeah. So we, we're coming towards the end. There are so many points of more conversation and questions I want to ask you, Len, but I, I have to kind of let them go. Yeah. One of my overriding curiosities is, in some ways you've said, in order to know what family is, you have to exist outside family. And I was wondering, what is family to you today in this moment? I I need to share something with you that's tangentially linked. I spoke earlier on about not being touched when I went into the care system. That then told me how important touch is inside a family. So once you take something away, that's when you realize how important it is, not when you're receiving it. And I, I went back, I've done a lot of going back to my first 12 years so that I can understand what happened to me. And I remember my grandma, Grandma Greenwood in Rochdale, how when we went to see her, she used to touch our faces and touch our hands. Like a blessing. And, just, and I realize now that I didn't know then that when she reached down and touched our faces and stuff, that Grandma Greenwood had grown up with children and then with a husband and slowly they passed away and with parents herself and she had seen as she became older the retraction of touch and when those grandchildren came up to see her we were a gift to remind her of the touch which signified the love that she'd known all of her life oh my goodness yeah, it reignited that. Of course, it did. That's capacity. why. That's why she did yeah. it. Not like my auntie. Not like even like a parent. She understood what it was like not to be touched. She lived her on her own in this little cottage in Rochdale. Of mm. course, she did. And what I want to share with you is that children who are in care—I'll talk about myself and keep it personal to me—experience the tearing away of relativity which is normally only experienced at my grandma's point in life so human beings are built to be able to lose touch and then gain it again yes. over the life cycle yeah a child in care experiences that before they're built to be able to handle it yes and this gives a child in care gives myself I believe an extremely unique insight into the human condition. Yes. And its needs. And and that is to say before they can understand that it's happening to them. So this means that when I look at the great stories in our lives, the Harry Potter, uh, who was a foster child, whose parents had passed away, Superman, who was taken away from home, whose parents also passed away, that the complications in their life, that kryptonite reminded Superman of home, and yet it also debilitated him, it stopped his powers, Mm. that Superman could only be Superman if there was a problem. If there was a problem to solve, he could only then realize who he was. That's a trap. He could never be who he really was. By the way, not just Harry Potter, not just Superman, but Lisbeth Salander, the girl with the dragon tattoo, yeah, yeah. Uh, Luke Skywalker, um, 
the Princess Layla, um, there is uh, Heathcliff had no parents, Jane Eyre, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. These fictional characters are utilizing all of the skills that they have through the loss in their lives yeah. of, of childhood. And what I'm trying to say is that there is something specifically incredible about young people in care and the potential for them to it's be something... their full selves is what we need to help them realise. And I really get that. And I get it with this beautiful example of touch is that when you're in care, unlike your grandmother who'd had enough touch in her body to weather yes. the lack of touch in old age. Absolutely, yeah. A child in care hasn't Beautiful. embodied and been enriched enough with enough touch. So there's this permanent presence of absence that is invisible because absence is invisible and isn't named. But there's some way that they gain and in fiction, as you said, superpowers to extraordinary skills to withstand what we kind of believe isn't possible to bear. Yes, absolutely. I do believe that. But I also believe that they were very, it's very important to know that, you know, any of these, you know, quote, as I've called them superheroes as well, they were very damaged as well, you know. Yes. Harry Potter didn't really know how to speak to people. He had real problems with close, intimate relationships. So did Superman. So, did, so Elizabeth, did you, Elizabeth I guess. Salander. Yeah, and so did I, yeah. Life is a lifelong project, you know. Because you haven't um, had children. I mean, we're going to end. I haven't, no. I mean, Is that a conscious choice? I, it, it, I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, possibly it is. Possibly it isn't. I mean, I genuinely don't really know. No. I'm not mourning not no. having children, you know. No. My life has been somewhat self-centred. I'm not I mean, against that either. No. I, you know, I'm, I'm against if if you do harm to somebody because you're self-centred, that's a different ballgame. But... As I'm looking at you, Lem, and I have found this conversation so powerful and enriching, is there are many ways of creating a life and in some ways many metaphors for family and in some ways it feels to me you've with words you create your family with the work that you do you create family i agree i mean even my morning messages i know they've helped people in lots of ways lots and lots of ways people who are ill people who are healthy i get a lot of love from people on my birthday etc so i feel blessed and I, I feel like I've somehow fashioned a family out of thin air. You know, people often say, oh, well, friends are the family you make. But you make friends based on your language that you've learned through family. Mm-hmm. I want to say that to people when they say, oh, Lem, friends are the family you make. I'm like, yes, you, you test out your how to have a relationship based on how you are with your primary people. I didn't have that. So... It irritates me when people do that. But ultimately, ultimately, we live with what we have and we can. The question is, is can you live at some form of peace with yourself? Uh, and then you can make change in the world. Yeah. That's a beautiful place to end, although yes. I would like to continue, is that you, given who you are and the adversities and difficulties you faced, 
that you're living up and down because nothing you know yeah 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 can you live in peace and give love and find love at the heart of it however you do that and for you you have found that yeah i never had a home so you always get the sense that the home that you're creating is not you've got nothing to compare it with but then i guess ultimately that's the same for most of us we've all got one experience of what home might be the question is is can we live with the home that we have created or are creating and i think i can you can make your home habitable when it was uninhabited yeah, yeah. thank you lem thank you so so much this has been so enriching is the word yeah thanks julia i i, I i've really found it enriching and yeah, yeah i send you a big love lem and i hope we'll love. be in touch thanks thank julia thank bye-bye you. bye-bye Now, listeners, it's that time of the show that many of you eagerly anticipate each week, the moment when I'm joined by my two incredible psychotherapist daughters, Emily, who's a child psychotherapist, and Sophie, who's an adult psychotherapist. Let's hear what they have to say about today's enlightening conversation. I mean, it was both devastating and humbling, and I thought incredibly inspirational in a way. I wondered what your responses were. It was a really moving story, wasn't it? Of extraordinary resilience that his own creativity and that words, the power of words, allowed him to find his way back to himself after such huge hurdles. There were lots of things that stood out for me. I was interested in him talking about forgiveness and anger, and I thought that was very powerful how he talked about how sort of the anger had infiltrated through his life. I know I've seen it in myself as well as seen it in clients. When you don't even realise how much anger or tension or resentment is in the intonation of your voice, it's in the things that you don't say, and how much when you soften and feel open-hearted again, suddenly you do things that you didn't even realise you weren't doing. For me, it can be things like, oh, I just hug my children that bit extra more without realising it. And um, it's invisible, isn't it? There's a charity called The Forgiveness Project, which I really recommend people to look up if they're interested in forgiveness, which collects stories and shares stories of forgiveness and from victims and survivors and perpetrators of crime from across the world. And it's really powerful hearing about people's journeys, isn't it? If you yourself are wrestling with ideas of forgiveness. When we still hold a lot of resentment and fury. It takes up a lot of emotional energy. And in doing that, it narrows our capacity to be open. And what you're talking about in the small minutiae of life, but also the big things, being able to have all of us available to respond, you not only give more, but you receive more. So you have a sort of Mm. uh, dynamic that is reciprocal. Mm. um, And that can be positive or negative. Right. And I think it links to the phrase that you use, mum, that a childhood lasts a lifetime, because I think often those resentments, that anger, they're getting translated onto your current relationship where actually they may be sort of set in place, as it were, from a previous relationship or even more likely early childhood relationships. That made me think about this idea that you both brought up of accountability 
And how do you navigate this very difficult dance between the past is the past. I'm an adult now. Really shitty things happen to me. But at some point, I need to be an adult and kind of own what I do while having compassion for myself and recognizing that I might have more challenges because of things that have happened in the past. That is so hard to do because it takes a level of awareness before you even start. And I think for lots and lots of people, I don't think they sort of even necessarily recognize that a lot of the patterns that they're repeating are because of hurt, because of pain that they've experienced. And therefore it kind of becomes impossible to become accountable. And you can get so preoccupied, can't you, when you haven't had a space to be attended to where this can happen in therapy, hopefully, where you can, is the sort of rumination, even if you're not conscious of it, or the kind of blame and anger towards the people who quite understandably you might feel angry and hurt with, stops you making that shift of taking control of your own life, where it ends up, you know, he talked about in his used language very clearly of like how the anger was ruling him. It's like those that still then hooked onto those hurts being the thing that was actually defining your life. But it takes uh, not only awareness, but I think in therapy, you get to be, your hurt gets to be witnessed and acknowledged, ideally, that then can free you to go, I don't, I don't want to stay there anymore. Actually, maybe I can make a choice here about how to move forward, even if I don't get the resolution with that person that I would like to have. Because I work with children, I, I think sometimes it's slightly different. But do you think in therapy, in that sense, there's also a place for challenge? as a therapist to challenge clients around their own accountability of actions and things like that? I think so. I mean, and, and I think in our friendships and our relationships that aren't therapeutic, I mean, that aren't therapy relationships, in that the only way that each of us can change is through awareness. And sometimes we just can't see it for ourselves. We need to be challenged. One version is to cognitively know that you want to be different and you want to behave differently in the present and not be influenced by the past and quite a different thing to do what Lem managed to do and that clients managed to do is actually expand and change your responses in an embodied way. I mean, I sort of feel like for myself, being challenged either in my own personal relationships or in therapy, if it's done with compassion and you feel heard at the same time, for me, those are the points where I feel like I, not maybe sometimes painfully, but grown the most, if that's not too like woo-woo, <laughs> you know? Like for me yeah. in therapy, having someone who just says what I've said is not helpful for me. I, I need someone to also challenge me I think. I guess it's one of the skills of therapy isn't it is timing and judging readiness isn't it because those sorts of moments can be really growthful moments and also you can leave them feeling very misunderstood and heard so it's it is a, one of those things isn't it of like it's a dance in the relationship of when is that moment where the relationship is strong enough is there enough trust or whatever the factors are or you know that they feel heard and understood by you that they can also hear another point of view or another view? I mean, I think Lem's use of words is so incredibly powerful. The, the phrase emotional Hiroshima 
those two little words say so much more than I could say in like 20 paragraphs. 10 paragraphs. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And it made me really think about identity and identity when you are young, when you're a child, when you are just learning to be who you are. And if everything and everyone you know is taken away, like for him, he didn't even have his own name. Like, how do you make sense of that? Often for children in that situation, in emotional Hiroshima, there is no way of making sense of it. And I think often children have this kind of magical thinking where when the external world is so out of their control and so terrifying that it's unbearable and therefore they put the locus of control internally and the way they make sense of all of those things happening is that, oh, it must be me. It must be me that's bad because actually that's less frightening than this world is a horrible, scary place and these terrible, terrifying things can happen. And that sense of identity that I must be bad, I think is incredibly hard to shift as you get older. When I've worked with people who've experienced abuse and trauma, one of the overriding hardest shifts is feelings of guilt and self-blame and that there must have been something wrong with them that meant that that happened. They were defective. And I think I read yesterday in The Guardian that there's just been this largest study ever of care experience and the youth justice system. And in England now, um, children who have lived in care at any point in their life are eight times more likely to have received a youth justice caution or conviction than those who haven't. I feel like those things must be related in some way. I mean, along with many other myriad of factors. Um, But it was quite a shocking statistic. Back at the time when he was born, it was one of the factors that made him so vulnerable was the fact that his mother was unmarried. And the care system as it now has lots of problems. However, I feel like one of the things that has made a positive shift is is that shame and that disempowerment of women having babies outside of marriage has really has dramatically moved on and it surprised me almost to hear that story because having worked in Ireland it was a huge trauma in Ireland up to beyond the 70s over 50,000 babies were illegally taken from their mothers that is a lot of babies in mother and baby homes who were forced to work many many of those babies died it happened here too it made me wonder when you were sort of saying we read some statistics I wonder what the statistics are how common them's experience was for women at that time. And it's so interesting because I think where I go, where you've gone, is all the incredibly traumatic and detrimental impact of being in care, experience disrupted attachments and traumas. And yet his story is such a story of resilience and power and superpowers like Superman and and how the way we're damaged can also be our superpower. With suffering, though. I mean, it's not without Absolutely. suffering. Yes. I mean, I think part of his thing about Superman was was suffering. Yeah. But I just sort of think, you know how, you know, with bodies, you can sort of do a, a post-mortem. And you're like, how did that happen? Where, you know, mm. all the sort of things that happened to him, you would think life would gone a different way. And yet somehow, through his creations and his words and his creativity, created this extraordinary life and it impacted so many people. And powerfully inspirational. But I think there's something about poetry that is maybe similar to music and similar to art, that it can speak to something that feels quite indefinable. 
I think it can touch you in, in a way that it's quite hard to put words to it. And maybe that's part of its power is that it reaches something that even though it's words, it's also the experience of it reaches somewhere deeper, mm. somewhere that feels maybe pre-verbal, that it can speak to your experience on this really visceral level that I think music and art can do as well. And, and I think books too, but in a way that just talking about something, it doesn't always reach the same level of depth. The other thing that I wanted to comment on, which was touch, one of the ways he tries, as I understood it, to bridge understanding about what his experience was like was to say how he hadn't been touched in all that time. And touch is another way that we can be emotionally shifted without words, isn't it? It's such a powerful source of love, of soothing. For me, it's probably one of the most powerful ways that I can be soothed is to be held. And it's interesting, I was thinking about it briefly, and I was thinking it's one of those challenges in therapy, isn't it? Touch is still kind of fraught with ethical concerns, and very understandably so when we're working with vulnerable people. I do offer my clients hugs at times when it feels appropriate. Not everybody does. But I was also thinking how much we separate those two forms of care, isn't it? Like therapy is like where we do words and we attend to the mind. And then you go to have a massage or you go and have, you know, you don't go talk about your feelings while you're having a physio session. I wondered this to myself. I was like, I wonder is that how we try and keep it safe? Like there's too much intimacy to be doing, attending to our mind body or at the same time I mean, obviously in trauma there's increasingly ways that we've thought about how we can support the body that's really interesting so i mean because i work with children and sometimes really young children and it feels not natural <laughs> to not touch and yet i think boundaries are important and every different child every different adult brings their own history of touch and what it means to them and touch isn't always something safe and comforting for people. Mm. So I think you have to know your client pretty well before you offer something like that. Sometimes I have children ask for a hug and it would feel very rejecting to say no, but I think you sort of need to be thoughtful about it as well. You know, when I get home from work, sometimes I get home from work just before my children are going to bed and I like get the last sort of 10 minutes mm. and my daughter who's two I give her like a, a little song and a hug and then she literally like just puts her head like in this this perfectly shaped curve <laughs> in between my like head and my shoulder and she just like fits into me like a little puzzle piece like a key like a lock in a yeah and and I'm just like like every single time it does something and it, it's a loving thing but it also kind of makes me want to cry every time like even just now mm, talking about it it's, coming cry. Home. it's like and I don't yeah. know what that is I don't know what mm. that is but it's definitely something to do with like I can like crying it's safety and home and yeah love and it's like and... I'm giving her the hug but really mm. <laughs> she's giving me she's the hug. giving it it's sort of so intensely precious yeah it is intensely precious Thank you both. I mean, we could talk about it forever. And thank Lem for such a really fascinating conversation that I think all of you listeners will get something from. If you think this episode is something that other people will benefit from, do uh, share it, but also rate and subscribe to the podcast. That really helps us get listens. And until next week, thank you very much. Thank you.